Well, good morning. Uh, what a joy it is to be with you again this morning. Um, thank you for giving of your time and your family uh, to, to be with us this morning for worship as we've gathered together. Uh, we pray that this time is meaningful for you and that it is a time of uh, edification as well as an opportunity for you to worship uh, your Lord and Savior. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 1 as we can continue our study there. If you're not already there, Mark chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 29, uh, which is where we left off last time. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to pick up this day in the life of Jesus. Uh, because, because what we saw last week, if you were with us, was that now his public ministry, at least as far as this book and Mark is concerned, has begun. And so the actual events building up the evidence about, about the nature of the king is being given to us. So that, so that up to last week, there have been these theological presuppositions given to us, these realities that, that Mark uh, was, was making known to us about the nature of Christ, who he is, that he has come, why he has come, and what he is doing. And, and then what we saw last week is he's going to then begin to give us a mountain of sort of a mounting uh, evidence to support his claims, that, that, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus sets the parameters about his kingdom, and that Jesus has come to recreate what has been broken and to restore and to redeem what has been lost. And so, so, so he is going to give us all that we need as it builds up to chapter 16 in this book so that we with Peter can be convinced that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, so this day in the life of Jesus began last week. And what we saw was this uh, claim to authority begins to be exercised in the spiritual realm as he casts out demons. What we're going to do is we're going to continue that day. He was in the synagogue. He was teaching with this new authority, this authority about the original things, this knowledge about the people to whom he was teaching and the demons with whom he was interacting. And, and he knew them because he was the source of their life. He could teach to the people in a way that none of the scribes and Pharisees could. He was able to touch their life in a way that no one ever had touched it before. He was able to understand the word of God and its implications deeper than any scribe ever could because he was the author and, quite frankly, finisher of that word. So, so he exercises this new authority, but he does so primarily in a spiritual realm. And so what we're going to do today, I'm really excited about the sermon this morning. What we're going to do today is we're going to see that it's much more than just a spiritual reality with Jesus. And it's really good news for us. It, listen, if up to this point in the story you were convinced to become a follower of Jesus, if you had half a brain in your head and you had lived half a day on the earth, your first question would be, well, that's all great, and what I've seen so far is pretty convincing and it's pretty substantial. But my life is not only spiritual. Right? And, and there is real sickness, and there is real pain, and there is real job loss, and there is real stress, and there is real problems and really deep valleys that are really physical and that are real for me every day. And so a purely spiritual Jesus who just cast out demons and taught about spiritual things might be of some help to me, but there is really good news all in the accounts of the Gospels. And that is not only that Jesus exercises a new authority that he brings into a spiritual realm and context, ultimately because his goal is spiritual, but it also manifests in 
evidence and, and in power and in, and in proof in the physical realm as well. That, that Jesus cares about our physical life, not just our spiritual one. Guys, that's, that's really good news. Uh, it is to me because life is not easy. And marriage is difficult, and kids are hard, and jobs are, are, are fleeting, and cancer is big, and hospitals are full, because life is real. And, and so it's real good news that Jesus cares not only about the spiritual things, but about the physical things. And this, this, this message this morning, at least in part, is going to be the beginning of encouraging us to this end. And I'm just going to give it to you in, in, in the beginning. Encouraging us to trust him. See, see that's what's so hard. For the thought, what, what's Jesus been doing? Up, up to this point, the king has come. Peter, through Mark, is making clear that, that he is the king and that he has come. And the king is walking around and going about calling people to follow him. He's calling Simon and Andrew and these these men off the boat from their father. He is is calling them to be disciples. And we talked about discipleship and what that discipleship means. And if you remember, I talked about that it's evidenced by a transformation of one's life and a reorientation of one's priorities. And he's calling people to be transformed and to reorient everything that they have and everything that they are and their families and their goals, their jobs, their children around him. And, and see, here's the deal. The question that all of those that hear the message must have is this. Can I trust you? And Jesus doesn't leave them wanting. He, he gives them... Evidence upon evidence upon evidence that the clear answer is yes. Come and follow me because you can trust me. And so he's going he's gonna to help us in that area this morning. So I'm really excited. It's a practical message, and it's a very encouraging one. So let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to pick up this, the rest of this day. Remember, he was in the synagogue teaching and healing. Well, casting out demons, it's a form of healing. But in the spiritual realm, exercising his new authority. Then the second half of the day, sort of after church, there's going to be be another situation that takes place. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the rest of this day in the life of Jesus. Before we read, beginning of verse 29, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, thank you that you have given us your son who we can trust with our life uh, to redeem and to restore, to recover, uh, to recreate us anew. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us wanting and wondering with questions unanswered, but that you have given us clear evidence of the power and authority of your son Jesus, the King. That not only has he come, but he's come to, come to get us, come to call us to follow him, and, 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 and given us every reason in the world to do that trusting. And uh, Father, we pray this morning that as we study, that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would open our minds and our eyes that are darkened by sin, uh, that you would allow us to, to be fed by your word, Lord, that it would speak deeply to our hearts and our souls, and Lord, that we would trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so in Mark chapter 1, let's just begin uh, in verse 29. Now remember, he's been dealing in all this spiritual realm, and, and this is structured this way very specifically, uh, there is the spiritual reality and exercises authority up to verse 28. 
and then it's going to move and it's going to shift a little bit. And, and, and the rest of this day is going to pick up. So let's look at verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Then at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the, the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and he departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So this day in the life of Christ uh, continues, if you will. And uh, he, is going to, he is going to do something that for hundreds of years has not been seen. Uh, it's very interesting. If you study the testimony of the Bible, at least as far as we know, in the text of Scripture, from the time of Isaiah around 750 up to the advent of the person of Jesus, there had been no miraculous healings to take place. And people were sick everywhere. I mean, you know, th- there were not hospitals, there were not advances in treatments and therapies and medications. When people got sick with very minor things in this day, people died. And they had for many, 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 many years. And so people were always searching for answers. And there were always people to give them some false sense of hope. So that there were certainly people who would have claimed to be healers. You hear about them in the Old Testament. We see them present even elsewhere in the New Testament. And they're, they've been present in our day. Uh, I mean, some of you may remember a time when people rode around on carts with snake oils and various concoctions and little jars that promised you some sort of healing from your ailment, and then you would purchase that, they would take advantage of your need, and then they would ride off into the sunset never to be seen again, and you would be left wondering, well, I don't know why that didn't work, but it was worth a shot, right? And so, so people have been taking advantage of this, but the reality is there's great need. Listen, you don't have to live long to understand that there are intense needs in the lives of people. And, and especially, and even in the lives of God's people. I mean, listen, as a pastor, I have, I have sat in hospital rooms and watched my church members die. I have gotten calls of accidents and wrecks and illnesses. I have been with families when dire diagnoses have come down from medical professionals. I have sat with them in their homes and grieved with them over the losses of jobs, or the losses of family members, or the losses of dreams, or, or whatever, whatever the need is. Not, not, only, not only medical ailments, but the problems of life are serious. They were serious in the day of Christ and prior to his coming, and they, they have continued to be serious up into our day. But the interesting thing about what takes place here, this is not the first healings. Remember I told you that there's been some ministry by Christ 
kind of for a couple of years that are not recorded in, in the text that we're looking at, not recorded in the gospel account according to Mark. So, so Simon and Andrew probably would have been aware of some of the healings that Jesus has already performed, some of the miraculous signs and wonders that he had done. And so what they do is, after he's in the synagogue and they see this incident where he's teaching with this new authority and then he casts out these demons in a way that these people have not experienced, something goes off in their mind and, and, and they think to themselves, well, we had heard about these other things that he's done. Maybe we had seen some of these other things that he's done. And guess what? There's this, this, this mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law. This is Simon who would become Peter. This is the one who's going to give the great proclamation about who Christ is in this, in this book here, the one probably whose eyewitness testimony we are reading. And, and it's his wife's mother, his mother-in-law. He remembers she's really sick. And she's got a really bad fever. And Jesus can fix the problem. And so they, they tell him, they tell him about this problem. And uh, it says, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. They had told him, they, they bring him there. They go to his house. And by the way, uh, he had a heck of a house. Um, it, 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 I guess we don't have any way to be sure, but you remember I was telling you about them being fishermen. Uh, if you ever travel to the Middle East and in the area known as Capernaum, you can actually go into what is believed to be Peter's house. But they have for certain found uh, what, what would be the remains of where the residence was. And, and the church met there, and he had a large family, wife and children, and then also uh, like Andrew and other members of the extended family that would have all lived there together with him. And so it wasn't just him, but, but he had a really large facility there. Uh, it's where the church met. It's where they worshiped. And, uh, you know, like I was telling you a minute ago, he wasn't just this poor old fisherman with nothing to leave behind. Uh, it supports that uh, hypothesis as well. However, so that they go to his house. They've reminded Jesus about uh, the situation. They've told him about his wife's mother who lay sick with a fever. Uh, and they told him about her at once, it says in verse 30. And, and then here it is. And this is going to be the first thing that I want you to see. Point number one, uh, that Jesus not only has power and expresses authority over spiritual issues, that Jesus has ultimate authority over physical issues as well. And so here it is in verse 31. So he came and he took her by the hand and the fever and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. Now, there are a couple things about this healing that I want you to see. And we're going to talk about healings in just a moment, at least briefly. I, I have no interest this morning because it would take all of my time in answering all of your questions about healing. But I do think that this is an appropriate place to give you some of them. And if you have further questions, you can see me about those or, or dad about those things later. But one of, the, one of the things about the Bible and with stories like this, because there are going to be dozens and dozens of healings by Christ and by his disciples or apostles in the, the testimony of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Dozens and dozens and dozens. And so one of the questions that you should have as you struggle with this reality of life and the difficulties and ailments and things that come upon you in life is do those stories mean that Jesus will do this for me? And, and closely tied to that, do those stories mean that there are people who possess this unique ability today to do this for me? And I'm going to address, at least in short, those two questions in just a moment. 
But what I want you to see first, because it's more important to this text, is the nature of what Jesus did. And it's going to be in part the nature of what Jesus did that I'm going to argue separates him from what anybody else, especially those today, can or ever has done. So let's, let's look at the text. What was this fever? Well, we don't think of fevers as much because we have Tylenol and we have ibuprofen. And typically fevers are symptoms of something worse. Well, it was the same way in their day. But normally, they could get fevers, and when you got fever, and you didn't have any way to get the fever down, the fevers would escalate very quickly so that you would be incapacitated. There were febrile seizures, and people died from fevers as one of the most significant parts of what was, uh, of a, one of the most significant ailments in their day. Okay? So, so it was not a small thing that they were dealing with a fever. So he comes to this place where this woman has this very significant ailment. We do, we do not know how long that she's had the ailment, but notice that she is laying sick. Now that's the language for being unable to get up and to be about and to do. So she is forced, she is bed stricken by her ailment, by this fever, by whatever sickness it is that's bothering her. And it's been there for long enough that she's been incapacitated and can't do anything. I mean, there's a lot of doctors in this room, so y'all understand a lot more about fevers than I do. I'm not a medical professional. But what I, what I do know is this, is that it had been there long enough that she was unable to get up and to go and to do. And they told him about her at once. And so he came, you know, you doctors try this, and, and he took her by the hand you know, like, like he was going to help her up a step. And he lifted her up. And then here's the word that, that Mark loves so much. And immediately, the fever left her. The first thing that you need to see about Jesus' healings is that they are supernatural and immediate. There is no process. There is no prescription for uh, the road to wellness. The road to wellness is you just encounter Jesus and you are well. Congratulations. Right? It is always immediate. When you look in, and when you look at the history of what Jesus did and what his apostles did, that at, at just the touch of his hand or the hem of his garment or simply being in his presence by his spoken word, he could do the most supernatural and immediate things so much so that dead people jumped up and strolled out of their caves. So that there was this supernatural and immediate response. But, but I love what we get next. It, it's probably the most important sentence or or. or testimony about what Jesus was doing. And look look what it says. And she served them. This is very interesting. This is the same word that we use for deacons. Why? Because they are those who serve. And in what way do they serve? Well, it was the word used for those that serve the table. And in a home situation with a wife or a mother or a mother-in-law or a grandmother, they would have been the ones responsible for sort of cooking and providing the meals and sort of doing the table service that that word points to in that day, especially when the men would come in and they had been out walking and teaching or working or on the boats or whatever they were doing. And here's what happens. This lady goes from febrile and sick to the point of bedridden, to up and immediately fixing him a sandwich for lunch. Here, would you like ham or turkey? That's unbelievable. 
so that it's supernatural and it's immediate. And, and here it is. The difference. It's creative. Creative. One of the doctrines that we as evangelical Christians hold so dear is that God alone possesses the ability to create ex nihilo. That's just a fancy word in theology that means from nothing. That he speaks and the word comes forth. Let there be light and there is light. Let us make man and there is man. Let there be turtles and pigeons and mosquitoes. And there they are. Or, in the context of the New Testament, let the man with the withered hand present his new hand. He creates. Let the person who has no life in his body walk out of the tomb. He creates life. Let the woman who cannot serve and whose body is broken, let it be created anew. Remember what I said about Mark. What does he present to us as the picture of the coming king in the very beginning of Mark chapter 1? That it is a story about recreation. It's the difference in Christianity and every other religion. It's the difference in Jesus and every other semi-god or pagan god. It's the difference in what we believe than what anybody else has to give to anybody in religion and all of those of the world. And it is that our God and our King alone has the ability to create. He can create a job for you. He can create an arm for you. He can create whatever He wants to because He alone possesses that ability. But then gives us the the hope that he can, but it also poses us with the question, will he? And that's, that's an equally important question. Will he? And if he will, how does he? Well, before I move to that point, let me make one other point about this power over the physical. Notice that Simon and Andrew, these new Disciples of Jesus who have left their nets and have followed the king. That it's their mother-in-law. It's Simon's. Just, I'm just, don't miss that Jesus not only expresses power over the physical and spiritual worlds in general. He is deeply interested in the needs of the lives of his people. Which means he knows about your problems. He knows about your back. He knows about your children. And he does care. So will he do what he's done here? Let me tell you very quickly, because I've got to move on. But let me tell you very quickly, the stories in the New Testament are not given to us to be normative. What that means is, is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach us that as Jesus has done for X, so he will do for you. There are no promises to that end. I would encourage you to find them anywhere in the Bible. Additionally to that, the purpose for these miraculous healings and accounts is is solely and uniquely for building up a mountain of evidence that cannot be spoken against to prove who Jesus was. Now that the Bible and the canon of Scripture has come to completion... The Bible is finished, and we have the testimony of the full Word of God. The church has been established and been built, and his direct apostles have ceased to be because they have all died. What you see, even in the testimony and the text of the New Testament, is that the farther you get in redemptive history and in that of the church, the less frequent these get. Why? 
Because the few men to whom this unique responsibility was given, that is of the ability to do these miracles so that they could prove the claims of kingship of Jesus, they have ceased to be. Because the need has ceased to be. The church has been built. The the king of the church has come. He has accomplished his feat for all of redemption on the cross. And, and, and there is no need for any individual person to be uniquely possessing the, the gift of healing. And, and we have no evidence, no evidence anywhere in history that anybody has ever done it. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't still miraculously heal. There are doctors in this room that will tell you about stories where they went in to see a patient who was in dire need and the need was fixed. The cancer was gone. The aneurysm was no longer present. Whatever the case may be, Jesus still does those things, but there is not a person who you can go to and touch and be healed. There are people that tell you that they can, but do you ever see them going to the hospital and just walking down the... the, Listen, there are plenty of sick folks. Why, Why don't they go out and do it? Guess what Jesus and his apostles did? Look at, look at what it says down in the text, the power. There's, there's more about the nature of the power here. It says, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed them. It was supernatural, it was immediate, it was creative, and it was complete. When was the last time you went to a healing where the person with the gift of healing did it supernaturally, immediately, with creative ability, and completed the task on the day? This is one day in the life of Jesus, and he heals everyone that comes to him. We know that he heals everyone that comes to him. The many there simply means that there were many, not few. It doesn't mean that he healed many of them, but not all of them. All of those that came there, so many that it was spoken of as the whole city, not every person in the city, And they were all healed in the course of one evening because of the unique ability of Jesus. So, though this is not a sermon about that, I think it's important that we understand that it is a unique ability given to unique people in a unique situation for a unique purpose. And I would argue that the Bible makes that abundantly clear, so please don't be duped. But here's the the second question and the better one. So will Jesus do this for me? This leads us to point number two. What is the purpose of Jesus in these healings? What is the purpose of Jesus in doing these things that he does? Let's go back to the text. Verse 34, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. We're going to see prayer is going to be the third point. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Why do you think everyone was looking for him? Because there were many who needed to be healed. They they had heard what happened night before and they were on their way. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there. Because for this purpose I have come forth. Okay, so so that's staggering. If we're going to understand what Jesus does and when or why he does it, we must understand for what purpose he does it. I think about texts like John chapter 4. Let's turn there together. John chapter 4 
And these are important. If you've got your Bible, uh, I, I would invite you to turn there with me. We're going to look at 434, and then we're going to look at 519. They're right here in the text together. But listen to these words. Then Jesus said to them in John 4:34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, God the Father, and to finish his work. Now going down to 519, just a few verses later. It says, Then Jesus answered and said to them in the midst of their questions, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So there's this connection between the will of God the Father and the doings of Jesus the Son. And what he is saying is that he can and will only do whatever it is that God has purposed in eternity to do. That's very important. Finally, one last reference, because it's important for you to see this connection. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you can find it, chapter 4. Because if that's true, then here's the question. What is it then that God has purposed? Because if God has purposed that your back not hurt, then Jesus can and he will heal your back. If he's purposed that you have no ingrown toenails, he will fix them as well. That you always have a job, that you drive a Lexus, he will do that as well. The question then becomes, if Jesus' doings are inextricably connected to God's purposing, what then is the purpose of God for people? Because then it's going to be, then the doings of Jesus are easy to understand in that they are limited to doing only that. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4. This is at least one place, there are many. Beginning in chapter, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Well, the question is in what? Not in money. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So purpose number one, God, God is interested in the walkings of people that they would do so in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and that pleases him. That's number one. So he's interested in how you walk, and he's interested in that you please him. Here we go. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So the the walking in a worthy manner and pleasing him is connected to the commandments that he's given. And then here it is in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is the purpose of God in sending the king? Well, we saw it in the structure of Mark. To recreate, to renew, to restore, and ultimately to redeem what was lost. God did not send Jesus to die on the cross so that your back will not hurt. He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that what you are not, you will become. And that is righteous. Do you see the difference? So that the purpose of God is your righteousness, so that the doings of the Son are, listen, only for your righteousness. So that if the thorn in your flesh, like Paul's, and if the problem in your life, and if the loss of your job, and the the cancer in your body, and the struggle in your family, if they are ultimately for the purpose of you being righteous and honoring and glorifying God, then they will be present. Because that's what Jesus' purpose in doing is. How do I know that from the text in Mark? Because what does it say? 
Everyone comes to him to to be healed the next morning. He has no interest in healing them. What does he say? Let me go and preach the gospel, for that's why I've come forth. So what was the purpose of the healings on the day before? Well, remember, what, what happened that morning? What was he doing? He was teaching with the new authority in the synagogue. What was he teaching? About the nature of the gospel and the king that's come to save. The question for people that hear that is, if you are the king, do you possess power to actually do what you claim that you're going to do? And he is expressing and showing them that power in healing their sicknesses, in casting out their demons, in fixing their problems, so that ultimately his interest was not first in their comfort or in their problems being fixed or in their success and wealth and power, but in them being able to see Jesus for who he was. And he'll do anything, he will do anything to be sure that we see him for who he is. So that the power of God over physical ailments is great. And and he might fix all of your problems, but he will if you are longing for him and pursuing him and, and, and open to his leadership. He will, he will, he will sanctify you and make you ready for heaven. It's not appointed unto man once to have their problems fixed. It is appointed unto man once to die. Death is certain. Problems are certain. And God may not always fix your temporal problems today, though he has all authority and power to do that. He will most certainly, for those that believe in him and trust in him as the king, he will most certainly give them a safe harbor to land their battered ship. Right? Here, so, so here's the thing. How does that get back to the original question? I told you at the beginning, all of us must have this one question. Jesus is calling disciples, and if anyone's going to follow him, the question is, can I trust you? He shows this power in, in, in pretty clear terms. He, he gives us an idea about the purpose. And he does both of those to show us that we can trust him. Here's what I mean. When we follow Jesus, we do not know where we are going. We do not know the path that we will trod. We do not know the depth of the valleys. We do not know the height of the mountaintops. We do not know the bliss of the joy, and we do not know the sorrow of the pain. And, and it is often that on the path as we follow Christ, the King, that he leads us on a path that seems roundabout to us, a path that we do not understand and a path that makes absolutely no sense, where we cannot understand how he is getting us to righteousness on the path we are traveling. But what he's trying to help us to see is that you are on the path nonetheless. Think about this. Did not Christ follow a pretty rocky path in following the Father? What does he say? I've come to do the will of the Father. I can only do the will of the Father. And what do we find him? His power, his purpose. Where do we find him in the midst of his ministry and the struggles of his busy day-to-day life? I can promise you if Jesus had been doing this today, he would answer more emails. He would have more phone calls. He would, he would be dealing with more things than any and all of us could ever think about having to do on a daily basis. He was a busy, busy dude. But, but where did he go? When, when the path was bumpy and he was tired and he didn't know where he was going next and he didn't know how the path was, what did he do? Well, it says in verse 35, Now in the morning, 
having risen a long while before daylight, that's pretty convicting right there uh, alone. I don't ever hardly rise a long while before daylight for this purpose. Uh, I should. He went out and he departed to a solitary place or to a desolate place, and there he prayed. What? He was following the Father. And, and he was content to be in the will of the Father when the path was bumpy and rocky and difficult. I mean, listen, his path was rockier than any of ours. It, it eventually led to the beating and scourging of the cross. And, and Jesus is saying this, that no, you cannot always see. You, you cannot always see where the path is leading. But you can trust me. You can trust me to take you where I've promised to take you. And that is to righteousness. For God gave him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him, we would become the righteousness of God. He has this unique authority that he expresses in a new way over spiritual demons, victory over them, showing that he can and will defeat sin. And then he expresses this authority and power over the physical world to show us that even when he doesn't fix our problems the way that we think that they should be fixed, he has all authority and power to be trusted to deliver us safely to our home. So that when you can't see the path, you can trust the one that you follow. I would encourage you today that in the midst of your deepest and darkest valley, and some of you may be in one of them today, just follow the king because he knows where he's going. He can and he may fix all of your problems today. But he can and he will bring about the full, complete restoration and redemption of your body, your mind, your soul, your heart, and your life one day. He is worthy of our praise, and he is to be trusted as our king. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the power that you exhibited for the purposes of bringing about our righteousness and for the example of your life and the path that you followed that was not easy uh, as you submitted wholly to the lordship of God the Father. Lord, may we learn from that example and may we be bound to trust you. For you are our king, you are our deliverer, and you are not a tyrant. You only want what is best for us what is ultimately for our good, that we might be more equipped at bringing about your glory. God, may we believe that and trust you when the days are tough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.